Welcome to another episode of Geography Now from the Royal Geographical Society with IBG. We are a charity, learned society and professional body and reach millions of people each year through our work in advancing geography and supporting geographers. In this podcast series, we'll be talking to geographers about the work that they're doing, topics they're passionate about and opinions they have about the world around us. At a time when it is impossible to host speakers at the Society, we are committed to creating content that can be accessed online and are excited to feature individuals who would have spoken at our events around the UK. Today's guest is Mariana Hotter, an archaeological writer and presenter. Today we'll be discussing her new book, Secret Britain, which takes readers on a geographical journey around the British Isles, examining some of the nation's most fascinating and often perplexing historical sites and artefacts. Thank you for joining us today. Can you start by telling us a bit about yourself? So I'm an anthropologist and broadcaster, but I guess I'm also a geographer. I've specialised quite a lot recently in writing about British archaeology. And the thing that really interests me is where those three disciplines meet, where you're looking at the past, but with that that kind of perspective of a geographer, looking at the landscape, the human relationships, how the different dynamics and, and scales of change are playing out. But then also with, a, I guess, an anthropologist's head, looking at the people, how they are interacting, thinking about the world around them and then shaping their their lives, their realities, whether that's work, how they bury their dead, how they change the landscape in terms of agriculture, what roads they build, what monuments they construct and and then kind of how they try and make sense of it. It's fascinating. I, I kind of love the breadth of these disciplines. I love the interdisciplinarity of it. And I think that's the thing that I really enjoy the most. It's it's the kind of the baffling, puzzling variety of people. And can you talk about how you came to write your new book? I've written a couple of books and my new book coming out this autumn is called Secret Britain, Unearthing Our Mysterious Past. And it's... um. I guess, a kind of guided tour around the British Isles of 75 of some of my favourite sites and artefacts, the ones that make you kind of go, ooh, what's that? Why did they do that? And not all the answers are immediately obvious. I certainly found that when reading the book. Uh, There were places that I had never heard of and places that made me think, well, that's basically a fairy castle on the coast of Cornwall. (laughs) When can I go? Yeah, exactly. My aim was to have some of the sites and finds that people would find familiar. Oh, I've seen that. Or, of course, everyone's heard of Stonehenge, for example. But then also to have ones that are insider secrets. So maybe archaeologists know about it, but the general public don't. Or sometimes they're kind of just really strange curiosities tucked away in the corner of Yorkshire or the corner of Cumbria. And unless you know about it, even locals don't know about these things. And sometimes they can tell the most extraordinary stories about how life in Britain has changed over hundreds, sometimes thousands of years. And so you've mentioned that the book features 75 of your favourite sites, but I'm going to ask you a really difficult question. What is your favourite historical site featured in the book? You got to pick one. Oh, I was hoping that you were going to let me have like maybe three or 75. And it was really hard actually whittling it down to 75. 
which became a sort of arbitrary number. And I kind of undernarred about, oh, I should include this and this and this. And it, it would just become encyclopedic, like some kind of, you know, gazetteer of everything that Marianne's ever found interesting about the past 30,000 years, which even for my mother would probably be a bit much. Okay, so what would be my super number one most favourite thing? I'm going to say Callanish, which is on the Isle of Lewis in the Outer Hebrides off the northwest coast of Scotland. If you haven't been to the Hebrides, to the Outer Hebrides, they are just the most extraordinary islands. They have that kind of island nature to them. It feels almost like they're clinging on at the edge of the ocean because they're absolutely exposed to the biggest and wildest seas coming sweeping across the North Atlantic. And on this promontory on the Isle of Lewis is a site called Callanish. Um, it's also spelled Callanay. And if it were closer to London, it would be hugely famous because it's bigger and I think in many ways more impressive than Stonehenge. It was constructed between 2900 and 2600 BC, so a little bit earlier than the stone settings that we see at Stonehenge. And it's astonishing. It's a, a stone circle with this huge five metre monolithic stone giant set right in the centre of the circle, rising up five metres. And then from each of the cardinal points, there's a line of stones. To the north, it's 80 metres of an avenue of paired stones. And then there are single lines running out to the east and the west and the south. And then all around Callanish are other sites, other prehistoric sites from this period at the end of the Stone Age and the start of the Bronze Age. There's cairns, there's standing stones, there's more circles, there's rows. And they also interact with the natural landscape. So the lines of the hills on the horizon, other islands um, kind of passes over. I mean, nothing in the Outer Hebrides is high ground, but, you know, what high ground, what lines of sight there are. And it's just the most extraordinary thing because it's difficult. It's complex archaeology and it's difficult to interpret. But it's also got an immediate sense of place and sort of some kind of profoundity about it that reaches through 5,000 years. And often you're visiting Callanish, you're not in a coach load and a queue full of other tourists. You kind of have the place to yourself. And it's just extraordinary. It's, it's so special. And our best guess, best guess based on, you know, hard archaeological uh, research that's been done by very talented archaeologists is that it's probably a astronomical observatory built and modified over thousands of years for probably mostly uh, lunar observations. And we think that one of its major alignments is with the point that turns up every 18.6 years in our, our kind of modern calendar years where the moon is at the lowest point in the sky and so it looks absolutely massive and it sort of skims across the horizon and we think that that's one of the key observations that was being made and that's why some of the alignments were positioned as they were. Uh, it's extraordinary to think that 5,000 years ago farmers had the time and the effort to bother about some particular kind of moon fest every 20 years 
But it does really appear that that's what they were doing. I mean, we're not just pulling this guff out of our, our out of our bottoms. This really, <laughs> this really is what the stones are indicating. This is what was being measured. There's also another funny little bit of stonework that for a long time they didn't really understand what it was and it was only when archaeologists were working in another area of the site that they noticed that on particularly sunny days a shaft of light would shine through these stones from behind and lay out onto the turf in front and would indicate the shaft of light would only shine through at midday and they've worked out that actually this strange archaeological complex of little pits and post holes that they'd found in the turf in front of these stones may well be the remnants of a very very early sundial so they would have been able to tell the time and probably also look at kind of celestial um, months and therefore solar months and therefore be equivalent to probably our annual cycles it's pretty cool it's very easy to assume that we know stuff and in the olden days they were dragging their knuckles around kind of just getting by managing to have children just before they die and then that was a job done it's it's wrong because the the imagination and as well as the social organization as well as the understanding of the landscape and the materials and resources you have around you have to be so sophisticated, so complex, so nuanced in order to even think of the idea of building a cathedral to the moon and then harnessing the the technology and the, the human power to actually get these stones raised and standing in such a way that they continue to stand 5,000 years later. I mean, underestimate the people of the past at your peril. So I think you chose a sort of firm favourite there. But also, you know, there's a, a really cool skull. There's a really cool cup that was crafted from a human skull by people who were living in Cheddar Gorge in the Ice Age. And then also this kind of crazy wooden idol, a, probably a god, that was thrown into the Thames and discovered when they were building the uh, Ford factory in Dagenham. Lots of things have come out of Dagenham, including a 4,000-year-old god. There's so many amazing things that people don't know about Britain, hence Secret Britain. Absolutely. And I think that something that makes the book so interesting, especially when I was reading it, are the questions that you pose to the reader and more generally about the artefacts and the historical sites that are featured. You go into this in the book, but so many artefacts in Britain, we can't be sure of the purpose that they had, who owned them, the story behind them, or why they were placed where they were found. So in your experience, how do you even begin to understand the discovery of a new site or an artefact? It's a really good question and it's one that drives people to study archaeology now. Often they are sites that are known about but perhaps have been forgotten or interpreted in ways that perhaps don't pass a kind of a scientific bar of evidence-based conclusions. And I think the other thing about archaeology is that we are constantly reinterpreting the evidence because we have new techniques of analysis, more accurate dating techniques, a better understanding of the sites and comparative evidence that might kind of say, well, hang on a minute, if they were doing this here and actually we've got evidence of timber being preserved because of the particular conditions in Lincolnshire rather than Oxfordshire, maybe we should be interpreting sites elsewhere, even if they don't have that evidence preserved, maybe we should be looking at a space where there is an absence of evidence rather than just saying, well, there's nothing there. I think often 
it's easy as well with archaeology sometimes to kind of go, oh, well, you don't really know, do you? Because you haven't asked anyone and no one ever wrote it down. But I think that probably gives unfair precedence to history because when people write it down, I mean, come on, we live in an age of amazing dis and misinformation. People writing things down doesn't necessarily mean it's true. Archaeology doesn't lie because there's no one fiddling it. No one's trying to bury a clever series of pottery sherds with human bone and, you know, the charred remains of medieval cereals in order to lead us astray and tell us a different story about what killed these particular peasants or how extensive the reach of the the church was. So in many ways, archaeology is your kind of raw material. You you can't mess about with it. And so the interpretations, the analysis, the the conclusions that we can draw are in many ways more honest. And I think in terms of a, a kind of a scientific approach, they're easier to to build on, to iterate from, to have a debate around that is robust because all we can do is look at the evidence. I think the other thing to think about with archaeology is that the past was populated by people so we have to step beyond just the the kind of the hard science as it were and kind of think about this in terms of human landscapes of emotional landscapes of these being lived places and artifacts that carry personality that carry histories of their own and it's that combination of ways of thinking about the evidence about the past about different approaches that I really enjoy and I think that's where geography really comes into it too because I think geographers are are trained to have that breadth of analysis that thoughtfulness that kind of you know like pushing away pushing away and just saying well, why what um, and kind of teasing out those threads of meaning I think that's something that that these disciplines really share I would definitely agree with you there as as a geographer yeah, exactly. I never really realised that geography was interesting until I got to university and read lots of geography journals and went, cool, this is even better anthropology than the stuff in the anthropology journals. I honestly got through school thinking it was colouring in pictures of volcanoes and writing about tourism in the Lake District. I hope my geography teachers aren't listening to this because they'll be very annoyed with me. But I managed to, yeah, I kind of fell through the net and I'm really pleased that I found my way back because geography is just the most amazing subject. It's so broad. It's so important. It really ought to have a higher profile. We ought to be more proud of it. We should be much prouder of the work that's done. I mean, again, I, I would agree. Um, I was lucky enough to love geography at school um, and then did it for my undergrad, my master's, and, and now here we are. Hey, here we are. <laughs> so you've touched on this as well, but something I took away from the book is how much I unfortunately underappreciate the country I live in. Um, I'm definitely one of those people who's always looking to visit other countries. and I'm so used to walking through London um, and being surrounded by history that I don't stop to appreciate it at all. Like I'll walk past the Tower of London, I'm like, oh, all the, all the tourists. Uh, but the history is absolutely amazing. How do you think your book will help people to become more appreciative of the historical sites and artefacts that have been found around the country? I think it is really easy to just take for granted the stuff that is literally eroding out of you know the ground around us and it's funny isn't it because sometimes you go to a country where I remember going to Sydney in Australia and them saying oh you have to go down to the historic quarter and uh, I kind of trundled down and went oh is that 
is that it? Because it was, you know, it was a wooden house that was 150 years old. And I was like, but my shed is 150. It, you know, it, it's that kind of thing where we just genuinely don't quite appreciate the depth, the layers of history that we live upon in, in the British Isles, because it's a very small island. It's been permanently inhabited for well, about 12,000 years. And we've got evidence of human and early ancestor species being in this landscape, I mean, the earliest evidence is a hand axe that was found in the, the sands near Haysborough in Norfolk on the coast, where they found tools made by a species of human before Homo sapiens, about 700,000 years old. The earliest artefact that I put into Secret Britain is the details of the burial at Paviland Cave on the Gower in South Wales. It's this amazing sea cliff cave. It's now halfway up a cliff and you have to either cross at low tide and then clamber up the cliff or kind of scramble across in a, a kind of a slightly precarious traverse. And this cave, it was it's also known as Goat's Hole Cave. And they found the remains of the earliest known human burial in Britain. It's about 33,000 years old. So it would have been someone living in Britain, probably temporarily, while the weather was good during the Ice Age. And it's a young man. It's normally known as the Red Lady of Pavland, but actually it's a, a young male skeleton covered in red ochre, which is extraordinary. It's this amazing bright red mineral and his bones are now stained with red ochre. But what was probably originally the case was that his body or his clothes were covered with powdered red ochre. And then as obviously the body rotted away, the red ochre as, as a mineral kind of remained relatively stable and then just settled onto the bones. The thing about these red ochre burials is that we find them across northern Europe from this period often associated with mammoth ivory, often associated with little shell beads. And again, it's sort of, it's just mind-blowing to think that 30-odd thousand years ago, people were reverentially burying at least some of their dead in ways that had shared culture across vast areas. And you go, well, how did they know what people were doing in Siberia? And it's possibly, you know, you have to kind of trace it back to some kind of shared cultural ancestry before these groups dispersed. I mean, they weren't sending each other postcards. They weren't necessarily meeting up to discuss the, you know, the hot new trends of uh, burial. But red ochre is an extraordinary mineral and it has such potent human meaning associated and attached to it. So, yeah, it's really easy to underestimate how cool old stuff is because it's everywhere. But hopefully this book is full of beautiful pictures, which is huge thanks to my publishers. So you don't actually necessarily need to go anywhere to appreciate some of these sites. And of course, you know, so many people are, are having to be careful about travelling or are restricted in some way in terms of where they can go safely. So hopefully this is an opportunity to have a, a window into into the world. And of course, we've got so many resources now online where we can visit places almost virtually. And if you can get outside, go to those windswept places. I definitely love being outside, but I'm also incredibly accent prone. So uh, scaling a cliff uh, probably isn't in the cards for me. Go for somewhere flat then, like Salisbury Plain. Safe. <laughs> Can't fall off Salisbury Plain. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Salisbury Plain is uh, one of my favourite places, actually. There's a busted reintroduction uh, project down there. Ooh. So that, that's really fun. Oh, that's very cool. 
And so you've mentioned COVID and a number of people not being able to travel. And I think that's definitely on people's minds right now. And so many people in Britain have decided not to go abroad this summer. And they've been sort of having these staycations and travelling around the UK. Do you think this surge of visitors to sites such as Avery, for example, may take away from the, you know, magic of those places? I mean, Stonehenge has already experienced this. You know, when I visited when I was younger, we parked in a field and we walked to the next field and there was Stonehenge. Whereas now there's a huge visitor centre. And that, for me, sort of took away from how special it was. Uh, So do you think more people going to visit these sites will take anything away from them? It's a really good question. And it's an eternal challenge, isn't it, between making sites accessible and introducing new audiences to places that are important and that are our shared heritage. And then also helping a site that in many ways might be vulnerable to that footfall, that pressure of people visiting. You have to kind of protect the site, but also enable the people. It's an eternal challenge. There are so many archaeological sites that you could pick up an OS map, look online at one of the historic environment records or pastscape and find a spot to kind of go and mooch to your heart's content with no souvenir programs, no visitor signs, nothing. Just you and the landscape and the pieces of the past that you can see. I think those iconic sites like Avebury, like Stonehenge, I think it's difficult because you want to interpret something for people. You don't want someone to go, oh, I've seen it now and I've took a picture of it for Instagram or it's raining, so I'm just going to get back in the car or go to the cafe. It's tricky, isn't it? Because you kind of say, well, what are the five things that I want someone to know about or think about or feel maybe, have an opportunity to feel about a site so that they can go away and take something with it rather than just a kind of slightly shoddy photo on their phone that they may or may not look at again. And I I think it is difficult because sometimes you're kind of starting off with something like Stonehenge, which was constructed about 2500 BC. It's a really interesting and quite complex period of time. It's the end of the Stone Age, it's the start of the Bronze Age, but we shouldn't really think of that as a kind of overnight revolution. We don't really know whether it was the new people building Stonehenge or the people who were already here. If you say to many people, you know, when was Stonehenge built, they, they might, you know, give you wild guesses between, oh, sometime around, you know, just before William the Conqueror turns up and, to, you know, the, the same time as um, woolly rhinos and mammoth were wandering about and neither is right. It's kind of in between. And so it's difficult, isn't it? Because you kind of have to meet people where they are. You have to make it accessible. You have to make it interesting. You have to make it matter. Because otherwise, why? I think we've all probably been on or had memories of school trips to what were probably important and worthy places. But the only memory that we all have is that it was really boring. And the one thing I definitely, definitely don't want is for someone to go, Oh, Marianne, that's really boring. I mean, you like it, but it's boring. And so I think the bits where an archaeologist goes, this is really cool. We can't really explain why this woman was buried in the bottom of a pit in the middle of a village with her legs spread akimbo. I mean, that is the cool stuff that you should be talking to school kids about. That is the cool stuff that grown-ups love. And I think that is what guided my hand when compiling this kind of guided tour of Britain for the book. It's the things where you go, no, really? Vampires? Or no, really? A secret Templar cave underneath Royston? It's that stuff. The stuff that is really awesome and really weird and really fun. And you and I 
as the people who haven't necessarily spent 20 years excavating a site can still wonder at and be amazed by. Because I think that's kind of one of the roles of heritage to make us appreciate where we are and what things people were doing back in the olden days. I think that making somewhere sound exciting is what gets people interested in it. You mentioned the cave in Royston, the little Knights Templar place. And when I read about that in the book, I was like, well, well, that's so cool. Yeah, it's super weird. And then there are sites that are really perhaps much more familiar and kind of more, you know, middle of the road. Sutton Hoo, for example, in Suffolk, this uh, Anglo-Saxon burial ground. Many people have heard about a great ship burial with probably King Radwald in it. But many of the artefacts in there have a theme running through them where one eye of what appears to be a god is missing and it's possibly a link to Woden, who linked to the Viking god Odin, who sacrificed an eye in exchange for wisdom. And the thinking is that maybe the Sutton Hoo helmet, where some of the garnets have gold foil behind them and some of them are dark, represents a one-eyed god, so that when the wearer of the helmet puts the helmet on, they perhaps align themselves more clearly. Maybe they take on some divine properties. They have the wisdom of Woden himself. It's amazing because there's always new things to find out. Someone who was creating a replica of one of the other artefacts that was found in this ship burial. It's a really extraordinary and strange item. It's um, normally interpreted as a scepter whetstone. So a kind of whetstone for sharpening sword blades, but it's never actually been used. It looks sort of ceremonial and that perhaps that you would possibly hold it as a kind of a scepter as a sign of leadership of, of being the king these tiny beautifully carved heads on the different facets at the top and the bottom of this long stone bar one of the eyes has been intentionally chipped out and they only realized that when someone was making a museum grade replica and went hang on a minute why doesn't this have an eye this is intentional and it's an old mark it's not a kind of new damage i mean that material has been poured over and over and over and over and yet we're still finding out new things the book has definitely opened my eyes to how lucky we are in britain oh i'm so pleased i love that good i don't really like writing because i find it quite lonely and i have to sit in front of a computer rather than be out in the outside looking and exploring and talking to people but it's hugely gratifying to hear that it's kind of possibly given someone inspiration to go and do some exploring or investigating or, or thinking of their own. I love that. Yeah, it definitely has. Um, my mum had a look at the book, actually, um, and wants to know about all the artefacts and sites in Sirencester. Yeah, Sirencester's good. They've got loads of cool Roman stuff in Sirencester. Yeah, she visits Sirencester quite a bit. My previous book called Hidden Histories, which was a spotter's guide to the British landscape. So that's more of a field guide for finding sites out in the landscape and kind of being able to interpret the, the clues that you might see. Kind of what are the lumps and bumps? Why is this field this shape? How old are these trees? And therefore, is this an ancient woodland? That was really enjoyable writing because, A, I got to kind of go on more field trips uh, to write it. But also, again, I've, I've done guided walks. I've spoken to people who've taken big trips to visit Kilmartin Glen um, up in Argyll or, or some kind of rare and random heap of stones somewhere or other or gone, oh, I found an old milestone the other day. It's ace because I feel like there's a little community of us sort of geeking around in hedgerows looking at old stuff. It's great. 
<laughs> that's how my mum becomes one of them. Um, so you've spoken quite uh, in depth about the book. Uh, but what is the main message or I guess messages that you really want people to take away from having read it? The message that I would love people to take away is that this is our shared heritage, that the past isn't or wasn't a fixed place where things were certain and that I think we can take insight from that, we can take comfort from that and I think it can often put sort of modern challenges into perspective. So we can look at changing religious practices, we can look at clashing of cultures, we can look at attitudes to migrants or natives and the use of the landscape, how habitats are used or kind of abused. And I think that we can kind of put our modern problems in context, but also just take a moment to be awash with the wonder and the strangeness and the mystery and the beauty of everything that's around us and the the past that we're building from. I think that's definitely a message worth taking away. Thank you so much for taking the time today. Yeah, it's been really fun talking to you. Thank you. And um, yay, go geographers. Thank you so much for joining us today, Marianne. If you liked this podcast, make sure to follow us on Twitter and Instagram at rgs underscore ibg for more updates about geographical talks and news. Thank you for listening.